Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Di Manuel is a super dad dating his wife with a lead-by-example way of living. He's a contagious personality, you're going to find out, who's on a mission to positively impact one million role models around the globe to lead a functionally healthy life through education, encouragement, and community. Folks, Di Manuel. He's an award-winning digital thoughts leader and author, distinguished Toastmaster, a TEDx speaker, and an edutaining keynote speaker. He's amazing. You're going to love him. Welcome to the show, Di. Where were you originally born? Where are you from? Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I grew up uh, just outside of Toronto, Ontario, which is, uh, you know, Toronto's the, the largest city uh, metropolis here in Canada. And um, I grew up just outside of it by about 90 minutes east along the 401 highway, which is considered one of the most dangerous highways in North America, <laughs> but, uh, which I think is interesting because I've also driven in LA and I, I don't know, man, that LA highway there, forget it. You know, oh, but yet I, I've heard Toronto has been, a, you know, basically said it's uh, just as dangerous, <laughs> but yes. either way it connects a lot of these little towns, right? Uh, if you're going from uh, basically if you're heading anywhere from East to West, like that highway connects it. And uh, I lived in a small little town and grew up there most of my life. And, and then when I was 18, I decided to move away. But because uh, I graduated high school, I was like, okay, I got to get it out of here. I need to start my own life. And I wanted to get somewhere where people didn't know me. Um, and to be honest, uh, you know, because it, it was pretty hard. There was a lot of memories there, but it was also just a lot of, uh, I don't know, what's the easiest way to say? It. Like I was morbidly obese as a teenager. And as such, being so overweight and out of shape and just a number of other health complications, especially mental health complications because of the, the depression that I was dealing with and also social anxiety. Uh, it, you know, it got to a place where I was just like, I started to make changes at 15 and, and, it, and I always tell people this, but it, it took me about, uh, I guess from age nine, 10 till the age of 15. So about five years to get to my largest, you know, it's not like I, I ate some unhealthy food and all of a sudden I woke up the next day and I was obese. No, it was like a slow, gradual process. But the problem was, is that I wasn't doing any activity and uh, I played video games and I watched movies. So I was getting my dopamine fixes from that. And, and, you know, when I was eating food, I was like, Oh yeah, pass me some more. No, I never said that. Okay. I was like, <laughs> I'll take some more ice cream. I'll take more of that. You know, and I, I was, I was eating to, to manage not only stress and anxiety, but also to, to treat, I was self-medicating. Okay. Like it, it was yeah. an easiest way for me to manipulate my emotional state. Now, you know, knowing this now, obviously, and reflecting back, that's what I was doing. Cause at age nine, I, my parents dropped a bomb on my brother and I and, and said they were getting a divorce. And mm. 
again, dating myself, this is going back to like 1985, 86. Back then we didn't have the internet like we do today. And uh, on top of that, you know, in my class of 30 other students, there was only one other kid in my class of these 30 kids, their original parents together. So the majority of them were, you know, in these more traditional cliched idea of what family was and uh, whether they were functional or not, I don't know. But regardless from the outside looking in, it was like, well, they're all together. And, and so it, there was a lot of stigma, stigmatization of divorce and, and divorce kids. And there wasn't any support uh, emotionally, mentally, uh, physically. And my parents were both working full time. So it gave all of a sudden my brother and I, a lot of this autonomy, but also autonomy to, you know, just sit there and be like, what do we do? You know? And, and, and I basically just ate my emotions and, uh, age 15, you know, woke up one day and made a choice to, to make some changes. And, and it really, because the, the, I was more afraid of not changing Amanda than I was of the idea of change. Like that's bottom line. I, I tell people this all the time. It's like, yeah, fear is a great motivator at times, you know, and I imagine Amanda, you can speak to this very well. Um, <laughs> but you know, that fear uh, of, you know, what the next five years, by the time I'm 20 and want to move out and start having my own life, I was like, well, geez, it took me five years to get to this place at 15. Let's be honest. If I don't make any changes with to what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, age 20 is not going to be any better. You know, in fact, it probably won't be as good as it is right now. And, and that scared me. It scared oh. me a lot. And, you know, suicidal ideation and depression and anxiety. I mean, it was just, a, I was a bit of a mess, you know. And um, and so I made some changes. And it took about 20 months to, to realize those changes into a lifestyle. But over that period of time, I slowly took the weight off, started to, to really develop a new mindset, a new appreciation for myself. And at the end of the day, I really just started to, to like me you know, and, and like my life and like my situation. And, and it's amazing when you, you get to that sort of place where you start to accept yourself. And uh, I hadn't done that, you know, and, and I will admit that there's been periods in my life I've struggled with that, you know, that, that idea of being enough. And, um, and so that sort of set things in motion. That was like one of my earliest traumas. And obviously, you know, a lot of bullying in school and uh, uh, those mental health challenges created some problems for me. You know, I, I, uh, I've done things that I'm not proud of. Um, I've hurt some people, you, you know, at least emotionally and, and more so because I was lashing out. They sometimes things or I'd act out to my parents. And I mean, I was hurting. And as they say, hurting people hurt others, you know, and uh, it's almost like a cliche that we hear today, but that's just the honest truth. You know, that's what I was doing. And, I like um, to challenge that one though. Yeah. Well, it's I think it can be. People yeah, no, please people. go ahead. It's, yeah. it's unhealed people. Oh, I like people. that. Okay. I will take that. I'm going to walk away with that one now <laughs> for me. I like that. That's actually <laughs> much more insightful um, and a little bit more kind as well. And uh, we yeah, all get so, hurt at some point. You no, know, we, we do. You're right. And for me, you know, being in that hurt place, I, I think it became so normal for me yes. that it's hard to imagine that there is change and it's possible. And uh so that was my first real encounter with change. But here's where the, the thing sort of went awry, Amanda, was uh, as much as I started to make all these healthy shifts. And, and I had this amazing experience one day at 17 where a friend of my mom's came over and, and you know, I, they come up to the back door and I'm in the kitchen cooking a meal and, and she's knocking on the screen door and she's like, and I see, like, hey, what's up? And she's like, oh. um, well, actually it was the wife and the husband. And, and, and so uh, it was Larry and uh, Carol and, um, good family friends, you know, and uh, they're like, Hey, is your mom around? I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. She's in the back garden and just head out back. You'll find her. And, and, and so she left and he just sort of stood there 
are looking at me still. And I'm like, okay, this is getting awkward. This is kind of weird. <laughs> what, what do you need? I told you my mom's in the back, you know? And, and, and then he said, you know, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I was like, oh, okay. Here's a guy that's, you know, two and a half times my senior, you know, he was, he was into his late forties at this point and I'm like 17 and, and I'm like, mm, okay, what did I do on this weekend? Did I get in trouble? Did I do something that I shouldn't have done? And does he know something? You know, like a 17 year old mind starts doubting, you know, and starts thinking, oh gosh, here's an adult that wants to talk to me. Oh boy, I'm in trouble. And as he came in, he sat down and, and the first thing out of his mouth, he started to, to praise and to acknowledge the shifts that he'd seen in me over the past couple of years mm-hmm. to that point, you know, and he acknowledged, he's like, yeah, you know, you've done a lot of work. You've completely changed. You know, you're looking fit. You're looking healthy. I mean, you're smiling. <laughs> like you just, you're di- so different. Could you help me make some changes? And I'll tell you, Amanda, this is the first time in my life that I could remember that I feel like I had value to offer somebody. Wow. And, and more importantly, I also have that inner confidence. I was like, well, I know I could help somebody do what I just did. Because all of a sudden I realized it was like, well, it wasn't actually that hard. I just moved more and ate differently. And, and that was about it. You know, it wasn't like life altering. It was just I started doing different habits. And, and so that was my first opportunity to start mentoring and coaching. And not professionally by any means, but regardless, it provided me with a great deal of fulfillment to the point that I was like, you know what, I don't care what I do for the rest of my life. This is going to be a part of it. And, um, you know, and that sort of set things in motion for me. And, and, but I I did unfortunately pick up a bad habit because that social anxiety never really went away. I thought it would go away if I got healthy. You know, I always believed it was because I was overweight. That's why I felt that way about myself and getting around large groups and just this over anxious mind constantly worrying. And uh, turned out when I got healthy, it, it still was there. <laughs> you know, it didn't really go away. And, <laughs> um, and uh, I remember being introduced to alcohol at a social event that I went to a, a party. And uh, it was the first time drinking and, you know, a few drinks in. I was like, oh, I don't feel very anxious anymore. In fact, hey, there's that cute girl over there. I think I'm going to go talk to her. You know, like, you know, all <laughs> of a sudden, like all those inhibitions sort of peeled away and, people started to engage with me when I was drinking. And all of a sudden I started to believe that, you know, I'm, I'm a better person when I drink. I'm the person that people mm. want to connect with, hang out with, you know, invites to be social with and the girls take an interest in. And because I didn't believe sober me was that person. And that set in motion literally 16 years of, of alcohol and me. And it wasn't a very functional relationship, but it was a relationship that endured. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, Ah, stuff. We'll just call it water under the bridge that occurred over the 16 years. But, um, you know, I'll sort of leave it at that. And I know we'll keep going. But uh, that that was sort of that that turning point between going from, you know, teen years into my 20s. And it it was a big part of it, you know, and it just sort of lagged along with me, even when I got into business and was being mentored by uh, uh, my, my first real business mentor. Alcohol was always in the picture. Always. And, uh, which made it very challenging to make change or to envision life without, you know, and, and I thought it was such a contingent part of me being me now. So, uh, you know, that opens up a lot of things, um, which I know we could dive into. So I'll, I'll sort oh, of leave God. it at that. I know I'm going off on these tirades here, but. Uh... No, I'm enjoying it, Di. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. Oh, there we go. There we go. Thanks, Amanda. So, and I totally get the whole self-medication with food mm. when you're a kid, with alcohol, mm. when you're older, it's such a common theme that we see with trauma survivors. I mean, 
when I was at my height of the abuse that I was going through in Scotland, mm -hmm. I turned to alcohol myself. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much to self-medicate after the fact. It was actually my attempts to uh, find a blackout so that I wouldn't remember it later. Yeah. Oh, I was gosh. hoping I could find some sort of hope in that. Uh, when I got back here to the States, when I first, when I first went over to Scotland, I been like beyond tipsy and to the point of drunk mm -hmm. on one hand. Wow. And when I got back, I had completely lost count. There was only one other time that I got drunk ever again after that. And when my roommate had to pick me up from the fetal position on the bathroom floor and carry me to my room, oh my that was when I said, never again. Wow. Do you wow. remember your never again moment? Well, I, I okay. So here's, <laughs> <laughs> it, there's an interesting thing in psychology that, that I sort of, I discovered this because this is sort of give some context to that question is, uh, this is going back many years ago where they, they started looking at people that were experiencing traumatic events and, or something that's very acute in the moment, painful, uh, and, and yet maybe shorter in duration. And, and what they did as an example here is they, they took something that's not exactly fun. Uh, um, and for those that aren't or maybe are aware, if you ever have to get your butt checked out, <laughs> oh, yeah. colonoscopies, uh, not a pleasant experience, not a pleasant procedure. And so they decided these these doctors were big brain guys, you know, uh, decided let's 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 just survey some people. We'll, you know, people are going to go through these colonoscopies and is we'll interview them before, during and after. And then again, many, many months or, or as far as a year in the future. Now, what they did that was very different was when they started to survey people, they realized that the peak level of discomfort happens at about 15 minutes into the procedure. And the procedures usually only last about 20 minutes or so. So you can imagine sort of you're getting 80% of the way through, 75 to 80% of the procedures done, and that's when you're at your worst. That's where it's feeling the most uncomfortable. It goes as far as to say maybe even painful for some. But that's where our, our peak awareness and sensations of what's happening in the moment, right? And it's a very uncomfortable. And, you know, when we're feeling uncomfortable, we're hurting, we, we don't want to sustain that. I mean, unless you're someone that enjoys that. But, I mean, for the most part, most of us are like, no, more, please, you know. And so what they did was really interesting. For some people, a certain test group, they would stop the procedure around that 15, 16 minute mark. So when it was its worst, and that would be the end of the procedure. And then others, they would let them complete the full procedure, go to the 20, 22 minute mark. And because people would always notice that the, the discomfort would always dissipate. So as they got into that 20 minute mark or towards the end of the procedure, they'd be like, okay, things aren't so bad anymore. So it was, I wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know what I mean? Like, because our, our memory of the procedure locks in on that final experience. And, and so here's what's really interesting. The further away or in the future, they started asking people to, to detail their experience of that colonoscopy. The people that ended at the 15 minute mark, all identified it as the worst experience in their lives, you know, oh. the worst procedure, like, oh my goodness. And it didn't matter if it was three months, six months, 12 months past the, the date of the experience. And what they found was really interesting. The people that ended on that sort of softer note or, or say when they got through the acute period and got to that more mellow period, you know, where it just wasn't as bad anymore. It's like, oh, okay, I can do this. Those people had a fairly fond memory of it, you know, so hmm. they would ask them, they did the same procedure. But it was just 
and how the procedure ended that really set the memory in place that they would often refer back to. And, and what they found is, you know, trauma, traumatic experiences are similar in a lot of instances. You know, it, it depends on what's happening in that moment. And uh, I can honestly say, and why I'm sharing this is, Amanda, if I'm really honest with you, I had a lot of those experiences that I should have woken up to and made some changes. And in the moment, and I bet you there's a lot of people that can relate to this in the moment of those really nasty experiences, like riding off a car, like literally falling asleep at the wheel, driving across a ditch and stopping inches within a tree, you know, because I fell asleep at the wheel after being out on a bender. And, mm. you know, I, I honestly, I, I could have died. Now, you would think that surviving that kind of a situation, I'd have a wake up moment. I'd be like, oh, time to maybe make some changes here. You know, that was cutting pretty close. And and in the moment, like for that first 48 hours after, I was like, oh, I'll never do that again. Yeah, no, I'm going to change <laughs> my life. I'm going to, you know, and as time progressed, you know, by a week, two weeks in, I'm like, well, yeah, well, I can go out and have a few drinks with the guys, you know, like it was amazing how it just didn't influence the change. And, and I've got a few of those things, those big, I said, gosh, you know what? This is not, I, I, I'm playing with my life here. You know, but not only my own life, other people's lives and, and my right. family's future. And, and, um, yeah, I was going to ask, you had yeah. kids at that time, right? Yeah, I did. They were both under the age of six at this time. Oh. Um, I was a founding partner of a, a company that was at that point, we were scaling to almost 10 million a year in, in revenue and, and, uh, you know, doing very, very well. And so everybody on the outside looking in just presumed that my life was just great. You know, everything was good. And, uh, but unfortunately, I was still dealing with a lot of those self-beliefs that I had as a teen. You know, I never really dealt with any of that inner stuff, the inner work, as they say, like that mindset, my self-perspective perspective on myself. Like just I never really did any of that stuff because I was so f focused on just losing the weight, getting fit, you know, and and becoming a professional in, in my career path. And, and so all that other little stuff, <laughs> the really important stuff, I, I just avoid it, you know, and. Um, you know, self-development, no. Personal development, no. Professional development, yeah. You know, like <laughs> that, that was really where I was skewed. And uh, because that's what I thought I was chasing was success. And I thought success meant you had to make more money, you had to have better titles, you know, like just, again, young and, and naive and um, just not really not really present for my own life and, and who I wanted to be or who I believed I w was destined to become. And, and because of that sort of disdain to, to everyday life, the drinking just was really, you know, sort of this conditioned response after a hard day's work, you know, or it's like the guys go out, we go play around to golf. Well, we definitely need to have some rounds at the end, you know, and just, it was just so easy. And, and yeah. to be fair, all my spheres of influence during that time, that 16 years, like, all the people that I would say are mentors or coaches or, or other business professionals, you know, that I networked with, that I hung out with. This is just the normal. So it wasn't like I thought I was doing anything outside of the normal. I just thought this is how things were because that those were those inputs. They were reinforcing the habit. And it wasn't until one day, and this is what my TEDx talk was about, uh, about 18 months ago, I did it. And um, I, I shared about that moment. You, you, you talked about waking up in the, or not even waking up in the fetal position, but being passed out in the fetal position, being carried into your room and waking up with that clarity that nah, I'm not doing that again. Well, for me, it, it took my wife threatening, you know, and I wouldn't even say it was threatening. It wasn't even an ultimatum. She was just like, you know what? We can no longer raise our girls in this environment. 
because they were at that age, you know, at six and four, they start to become much, much more aware of what's going on. They start to recognize certain things, certain act outs and habits. And my wife is like, you know what? This is not an environment that is conducive for raising healthy uh, and, and well-adjusted kids, you know, like, and, and this is the hard part, Amanda. I, I realized, you know what? She was absolutely right. And um, she asked me a question. Now, this is the question. So anybody, if there's anything you take away from this conversation that you and I are having right now, I think this is the question I'd like to invite everyone to just put to memory. Because this was the most sobering, pardon the pun, question I could have ever been asked. And my wife looked at me and, you know, we're, we're discussing what co-parenting is going to look like, what our living arrangements will look like, what the custody is going to look like. Like we're literally into that conversation about what it's going to look like. And, and I didn't want it. And to be honest, she didn't want it either. But that was where we felt we had to go. And, and she looked at me and she said, Ty, are you being the type of man that you would want to marry your daughters? And Amanda, it was in that moment. Yeah, it was just like, whoa, I got punched in the nose, kicked between the legs and, you know, gutted literally all in one second when that question landed. And I, I realized that, you know, a lot of the habits that I was acting out, what I was showing my kids was a man, was a husband, was a father, was a best friend, was a community leader, was a business. Like all these things that I was trying to just be a good example to my kids, it was being undermined completely by this other entity I was showing up as. And, and I would never, ever allow anybody that I was like, you know, and this is going back 14 years ago, right? If I was, if I had a guy like me 14 years ago showing up on my doorstep wanting to get close to one of my girls, there's no way in hell I would even let them in the door. But that's what I was modeling. And that's what I was mentoring. And wow. uh, it was in that moment, I made a commitment to my family and my wife and my kids both. Like they got them all on the couch and I'm like, you know what? Dad's going to go one year with no drinking. <laughs> my, and, and again, I know there's people thinking, well, dude, only a year? Like that's not that bad. And I'm <laughs> like, well, yeah, but from age about 18 to age 33, I, the longest I've ever gone is like a 30 day cycle without drinking. Like that's the longest I ever went. It was like one of those sober Januaries or one of those like sort of things. And other than that, it was just always present. And uh, so for me, that was like, oh, this will be a 12X uh, commitment. You know, I'm, I'm going to go 12 <laughs> times longer than I've ever done. And, and believing that that's what it would take. And um, I remember my uh, daughter, Chardonnay at the time, six years old. And again, yeah, you're probably hearing the name Chardonnay. And yes, <laughs> my wife and I shared many a bottles when we started dating and, and getting close together. So obviously our firstborn daughter, we decided, hey, let's call her Chardonnay, you know, and uh, it wasn't for the grape, it was for the wine. But um, <laughs> that's how present alcohol was for me and my wife. Wow. And uh, if and if people are wondering, my second daughter, Brie, my youngest one, her, her name is Brie. So Chardonnay and Brie is, yeah. They go well together. They do, they do. Socialites <laughs> in the making. But um, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I realized, you, you know, that I, I needed more than just needed. I wanted to make a change. And I think that was the big differentiator, you know, was because it was coming from a place that I wanted to do it. And my, my six-year-old at the time who had a lazy eye, so we had these corrective lenses on her that the optometrist had given her. So they looked like Coke bottle glasses, right? Like <laughs> huge and she's looking up from at me from the couch and she's like okay so does that mean no coffee no pop you know like because <laughs> i said no, no no drinking right and she's like and we're like no 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 adult drink so you know even in this moment of absolute tension and and sadness and just like oh you know 
it was amazing. She, she, she broke that ice, that tension with something so innocent and, and so <laughs> light. And so just, just, it could only come from the mouth of a babe. Right. And, and in that moment, my wife and I, we laughed and we sort of chuckled and, and, you know, we knew things were going to be all right. Like wow. it was just a weird sort of feeling. And, and, and then I got to work, but I'll, I'll tell you in the first four or five weeks, I realized I don't know if I can do this. I didn't realize how much of a crutch alcohol had become for me to function. And, um, and that's when the real work began, you know, and uh, we can dive into that in a little bit. But but just a little short uh, footnote on this. Um, at the end of one year, my wife's like looking at me. She's like, my gosh, you did one year. And I was like, holy crap, I did one year. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we both were like, just like, awesome, you know, and. And she's like, well, should we celebrate? Share a, a glass of Chardonnay while we watch the sunset tonight. And 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 I know deep down, I think it would have been fine. But I remember looking at Christy and I was like, hey, you know, so much has changed in just 12 months. What do you think would happen if I just kept going? <laughs> and, and that's when I made a decision. I was like, I'm just going to keep going. I, I'm not going to put a timeline on. I'm just going to keep going. And you know, 14 years, my 14th year now uh, since I touched alcohol. And I'll tell you, everything changed. I had I ended up changing my career, changing where I lived, you know, changing my business. Like I, I changed everything. And, wow. Uh, it, it had to be scary. But oh, yeah, it, it was scary. But I'll tell you, it's it's a far less scary than the idea of losing my family. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My watch heard me speaking and thought that I was I heard uh, that. speaking yeah, I heard to it. Or something. <laughs> it said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was too. Very appropriate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was sort of uh, where, where everything began. And, and that was my moment of like waking up on the floor. You know, it was uh, wow. it was hard. But man, it was the best thing that could have happened in, in retrospect. Yeah. You know, otherwise, I, would you and I be talking today, Amanda? I can honestly say no. I really yeah. don't believe we would have ever connected. We wouldn't be having this conversation, uh, you know, just, but that's amazing how one decision can change everything, you know? Well, I mean, that one decision kept your family together. You would have yeah. been a broken man without those two little girls and that wonderful wife. For sure. They were definitely, uh, I, I like to refer to them as more like the, the uh, up here in Canada, we got something called duct tape and I, I know it's sort of the ongoing joke, but uh, up in Canada, it's, it's our fix all for everything. You know, it's not crazy good. It's duct tape, but uh, I, I equate my family at that time and they were just duct tape holding me together. And Aww. and I knew if I didn't have them, it would have been a very messy situation, you know, cause I also did a lot of uh, when I would drink heavily, the narcotics were involved typically. Um, yeah. I, I never bought it myself, but I would be offered it. And I'd never say no. So, right. um, and again, that was just based on the people I hung out with, you know, I was just who it was. They, they even had a little moniker for me, you know, they call me fun guy die. Like that was it. Even it got to a point, man, I'd go to professional conferences in my industry and the suppliers, we'd do some business. And then they'd ask me after the business was done, they'd be like, Hey, so where are you going tonight? We're going to come hang out with fun guy die. You know, like it was just, I had this reputation and I'm not saying this to brag. Cause I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but that's just a sign of how long that pattern went on for, you know, where it became my identity. And anytime we want to change our, our identity, it, it is not an easy change because you got a lot of belief systems. You got to rewrite, reconfigure and reframe. And that's what I mean. A few weeks in, I, I realized I needed some help with that. And it was my yeah. first time in my life ever asking for help, you know, well, on that level. And so, uh, yeah. Anyways, I mean, hence that talks about vulnerability, right? So, yeah. I mean, that was, that was your brand at the time. It was, you are right. That's how you people right. know you. 
And you have this fantastic brand now for how people Mm. know who you are at the Mm. moment. But it's got to be a challenge to look back and to recognize what it is that people were seeing in you. And that's got to be painful sometimes. You know, it's why I shared that story earlier. You know, like I said, it's 14 years now removed from the person I was then. Yeah. And I find now, and I don't know if you were similar with this, Amanda, if, it, if there's enough water under the bridge, so to speak, enough time has passed. But I know for myself, 14 years later, like I am so different than who I was 14 years ago. I feel like I'm almost talking about somebody else. And at times I have to remind myself, no, that's me I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Like, it's right. just, it's so different and it's so removed and I've changed so much. Uh, that it, it is often when I reflect back on it. But the, but there are those moments, like, believe me, where I remember, uh, you, you know, a family party, like a, a party for my daughters, right? Like, fifth, I remember when she was turning five. My goodness, I I didn't make it to the end of the party. Like, mm. I was drunk. Like, I'm supposed to be man in the barbecue and I can barely do that. You know, like, it just, it was awful. And we had all these kids there. We had other parents showing up. Like, I was just... I think back on it, I'm like, oh man, that, that, there's a memory I like to forget, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, I obviously didn't drink enough to forget about it, but uh, it, it's, yeah, like there's those moments and when those come up every once in a while, like, it's just like, oh my goodness, thank goodness I made those changes, you know, like all I can do is say, thank you for the memory. It's just another reminder. I ain't going back there, you know? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What was most helpful for you when you were trying to make these changes? Well, Having the support of my family was really important, uh, especially Christy, you know, my, my wife, um, we're, we're now 23 years together, which is just amazing. I, I, I still think that's, and I, I give her all the credit. I, I, I really do. I mean, uh, she just, she's not a quitter in anything, you know, and, and she, she saw something in me that I just wasn't seeing in myself and, and that's who she fell in love with. And that's who she always tried to pull out of me, you know? And so when I got rid of the alcohol, all of a sudden that person was able to, to evolve and emerge. And, and uh, I'm so grateful for that. But outside of that, I remember the first time getting vulnerable with my wife, like really getting vulnerable, telling her about everything that was going on in my head. So this is, you know, about a few weeks into no drinking and that's just having this honest heart to heart. And, and I was just literally dumped on her. Like I just shared mm. everything to the point of oversharing, right? I was just like, well, Niagara Falls, like, Bleh. and uh, that's what I call trauma vomiting. Oh, okay. There you go. So that's what I was doing. Okay. It was a whole <laughs> lot of trauma vomit. I love that expression, by the way, Amanda, I'm totally going to quote you on that. But uh, so here I am having this trauma vomit um, moment and she was so generous with her listening and hearing me. And, and I remember her just, just listening, just giving me the space to vomit <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then she looked at me and she was like, you know, thanks for sharing that with me. I had no idea you've been struggling with all this stuff. Wow. And then she said, I think you should talk to somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and because, you know, to all her credit, like she's right, like, because she, she couldn't be everything for me. You know, right. she's my wife. She's my life partner. She's the mother of my kids. You know, we're co-creating this life together. And but she can't be my therapist. Right. You know, well, the second she starts becoming your therapist yeah. is the second you have a codependency relationship and it's correct. no longer healthy. You are so correct. And and I already know that we were working really hard uh, I, within a couple of years after the drinking because I realized that there was by her um, not. And it was only because I was that kind of person. I was very type A and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyways. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think I, I put a lot of pressure on her and um so to be fair, when we got through that vomit session, I, 
I was like, you know what? I think you're right. And, and this would be my first time ever engaging in anything like that. Cause I never, to be honest, never really believed in it. Yeah. You, you know? And, and so I, I went and found a psychologist, worked with him four months, um, found a, a relationships counselor that my wife and I started to go to. And first session in the, she's looking at us on the couch and she's like, you know, Christy, I think it's better if Di just comes back on his own, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> just, just to put things in a sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, in context. And, and uh, so, yeah, that, and then embraced that and, and, and just really started to do a lot of the inner work. But the biggest change that was most impactful, Amanda, outside of that, that third party support, which was just life changing. And, and trust me, anybody that's listening to this, it's not like it's a forever commitment. I, I was like, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to treat this like the number one thing. I'm going to treat this work, this change as my priority one. And I realized the one thing that was holding me back from really leaning into that fully and embracing the process was that my friend group, you know, these, these people that I counted as friends, my social networks, they were very uncomfortable hanging out with me as the mm. sober guy, because uh, to be fair, you know, I'd still get invited out occasionally, you know, go to UFC night, you know, at the pub <laughs> yeah. and, and it's great for the first, say 10 or 15 minutes, but by then they're already on to round two and it's, it slowly deteriorates, right? The conversation, the, the connection, I was literally starving for deeper connection, especially men, because at that point I either looked at men as competition or I, I envisioned men as, uh, as, I don't know, like I, I would often feel conflicted towards other guys, you know, like it just, and it wasn't, for lack of wanting to have deeper connection, it was just sort of the situation that I found myself in and, and some of my belief systems. So I, I never really had anything beyond that superficial sort of connection with other guys. But we'd go out, we'd drink, we'd have fun. But anything beyond that, anything serious on conversation side just wasn't present. And so when I all of a sudden I started leaning in and wanting more of that, they were like, mm, no, <laughs> you know, they weren't <laughs> wanting it. And, and I realized, you know, if you can't change your friends, you just got to change your friends. Right. And. I ended up just finding new communities, people that were more in alignment with who I believed I was now becoming and who I really wanted to be, who I had always envisioned I'd be, you know, and, and now I was like, I got to get everything in alignment to, to prioritize that. And, and so I know that's the hardest part for people when they endure big changes, especially if it involves like you, you come to a stark realization, it's like, you know, like I'm changing, but my friends, they're pretty, they're not supportive of me changing. So yeah maybe we actually just change those relationships and, and I ended up doing that. But that, that was challenging pieces. Like I just, I'm full transparency here. You know, that was, that was a lot harder than I thought it would be. And that's all about building healthy boundaries too. Because yeah. I mean, yeah. when you start to better yourself, the people that have always known you to be the person that you were, they're not going to like the new you. They are so yes. used to the old you and we are so resistant to change. They don't want to see you change. They want to bring you back to where you were and keep you there because that's where they are comfortable with you. Yes. Yes. Ah, well said. And uh, there's some wisdom in that truth. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, yeah, it's yeah, but it was it was, you know, I. I'm very happy about everything and where it's all gone. But, uh, you know, when you realize that, and, and I know the biggest challenge for some people too is family, right? Like family can be the, the part that's really wow, apprehensive or resistant to the change. Um, yeah. 
and uh, I was fortunate that my family didn't provide any resistance. In fact, they were very supportive. Uh, so that that was a real help because um, I, I don't know what would have happened, you know, had I not had my family support on top of that. Um, I, I think it just would have made it challenging because I probably would have become more estranged with my family. Like what I ended up doing with my friends, you know, I kept it, you know, very surface relationships, but I, I was like, you know, I'm going to go find people that are on the same wavelength. I want similar things. Also people that don't prioritize alcohol, you know, and, uh, and that's what worked for me. It really did. And uh, never looked back, you know. And social drinking is such an epidemic too. I mean, it's the one thing where when you say no thanks, you feel like you have to justify it. And I see this all the time with people that are going out and they're like, no thanks, Mm. I I don't want to drink. Oh, what's the matter? We'll we'll give you a ride home. We'll make sure you're okay. No, no, no. That's not what it's about. I don't want to drink. Yes. And it can be such a horrible challenge. Do you have any words of advice that are people that are going through stuff like this? How can they combat the issues? Well, I I always like to present it to people. It's like, you know, get really clear on what your values are, but also like the priorities in life. And this sort of ties into what you were saying about the boundaries piece, right? Like, because the clearer you are on what you prioritize and specifically prioritizes non-negotiable you'll start to find that it provides a really quick filter to make decisions. Uh, at least that's, that's what I've personally experienced and I've seen it work for other people too. But you know, when you're really clear on what's important, what's a non-negotiable. And, and for me when, through this change, I mean, health was always important, but I didn't always act as such. You know, sometimes I would do certain things that was definitely challenging that belief of, well, in fact, I was doing the opposite of prioritizing my health, you know, especially mm-hmm. my mental health, my physical health emotional health, spiritual health. I mean, all of it, right. I was, I would do things that as a social I wouldn't do, but when mm-hmm. I introduced drinking, it's amazing how a lot of those things would change. I'd eat certain foods I'd never typically eat, you know, like I just, I, my, my choices were often very much skewed in a different direction, the direction I didn't want to go. So when I started to get really clear on, on what's important and how important my health is to me, I started to realize that you know, this social drinking piece, I, I can go out. I'm social people. If they're drinking, I have no problem with that. But I also recognize I don't want to be there for a long time if they keep drinking, you know, because for me, it's just that the conversation deteriorates. We're not on the same level. It, it just, I don't get as much value from the conversation any longer. And, and, and I believe they aren't either, to be fair, you know, if they even remember it the next day, right? So <laughs> for me, it's the health component. And the quality of connection. So that's made it really easy for me to not myself uh, be involved with the social drinking, you, you know, at least me personally, because I made that choice. Right. But all I like to encourage people to do is like, you know, just just reconnect with your health, prioritize what's important to you. And okay. if alcohol is not serving you and you haven't looked into the data and the scientific research backing alcohol's effects on the human body, you know, they've since finally come out and they've also said, you know, that the couple drinks a week is actually not accurate. You know, that's not necessarily healthy uh, for us, you know, and and all I want people to do, I'm not here to vilify alcohol. I'm not here to say it's bad or, or don't do it. That's not my message. But my message is to reconnect with your health, get clear on the kind of life you want to be living and then start to ask yourself, does alcohol serve you in achieving that or does it actually hold you back? Because if the answer is the latter maybe there's some room to make some changes, you know? 
And, and that's what I like to do. Cause again, I, I'm not here to vilify or to make anybody feel guilty or shameful about their choices. That's listen, I'm the last person that can ever do that. <laughs> um, and, but I do recognize that when you get really clear on those important things in your life, like for me, it was all role model and mentor for my kids. And I realized without alcohol, I felt more connected to that goal, you know? And so it was really an easy decision to just keep going. Like for me, once I had made it the real hard part through that climax of that change, uh, the rest of it just felt awesome. Like it was self-fulfilling. It was also self-fueling. Like my, my more good decisions led to more good decisions, led to more good decisions. And uh, I just life felt much more joyful, happy and fulfilling. And, and at the end of the day, I think that's what we're all searching for. Right. Absolutely. That's the key to life. That I connection. So. Yeah. Yeah. Who inspires you the most? Well, besides my wife, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I give credit, see, probably not as much credit as I should, <laughs> but uh, I, I really do feel inspired by her. She, she's had quite an interesting life. Um, she's the eldest of five siblings, uh, but her, she lost her mom uh, when she was 13 in, in a freak accident. Uh, they were renovating a, a, basically a retaining wall fell on her mom and crushed her to death. Oh, and, uh, Oh, yeah. At, at age 13, you know, they were building their dream home. They saved up all their life to get to that point or her father and his, her mom and just this freak accident. And um, but that thrust her into a role of being more or less the the, the motherly figure of her four younger siblings at the time. And she, she's just such a wonderful person. And uh, she always edges to the side of kindness and uh, almost to to I, I often tell her, you know, it's, it's almost to a fault because I, I know she can be taken advantage of. Right. You know, and, and as we see people do take advantage of people. But that's probably just me and my own filtering, because for her, she never sees that. She's like, no, if they need help, I want to help, you know. And so that really inspires me because that's a real life example I'm, I'm <laughs> witnessing daily, you know. And so it's a nice reminder. But also it's been something that just inspires me because I'm like, man, if, if more people in the world are like her leading with empathy, gosh, it, we'd have a very different world, you know? So that that's on the real side, that for sure. And then when it comes to just sort of outside of that, I, I've been fortunate to be fairly well read. And, and uh, there's a lot of books out there that really inspire me. And um, there's certain stories I go back to once a year, one of which is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And uh, it's, a, it's a book I'd recommend everybody to read. If you don't like to read, get the Audible book that's uh, narrated by Jeremy Irons, the uh, actor. It's a wonderful audiobook. It's actually, I end up going to the audiobook all the time now because I just, he does such a wonderful job. But uh, it's just a really beautiful story. And it actually captures a lot of what we've talked about today, that story and the key messages in it. And uh, without spoiling the plot, I'll just leave it at that. That is very cool. I didn't know Jeremy Irons did the, yeah. the Audible. I gotta, yeah. I gotta check that out. Now. It's so good. He acts out all the different characters in it. Like it's just, it's so good. And, oh. uh, but the story is also just very powerful. It's just a, a wonderful story. Well, and I'm glad you brought up books because uh, I know that you've written one. Yeah. Uh, do you happen to have it handy? Would you be able to do a short reading for our audience? Ooh, I, I certainly could. I, I'd love to. Yeah. Uh, I got it right here. What would you like me to read? Or is there anything in particular? Um, <laughs> something about if, if there's something in there about your message and, and kind of what the book is about. All right. 
I'm actually looking at it on Amazon right now. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I could read the introduction, I guess. Would that that be fitting, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, why don't we do that? All right. Well, when people see the actual book, uh, next to this page with the introduction is actually a picture of my family, and it's a goofy photo. But uh, I figure it's a when people look at my book, there's lots of colorful images in it, and uh, all the images are actually either friends or family or my family. So, um, anyways, it, it it makes a lot of sense when you see that. You'll get a, a feel for the key messages and where it's coming from. But regardless, here's the intro. <clears throat> Uh, all right do you want to live a life of total awesomeness some years ago i asked myself that same question i realized that while i had a lot to be thankful for in my life i was falling short on my own potential don't get me wrong i was doing the best i could and life had been trucking along just fine i had moved to a new city on the west coast attended university started to discover myself landed a great job fell in love traveled a little and even started a family. But I never seemed to have time for the things that were most important to me. I was also spending more money than I had. My health and fitness ebbed and flowed throughout my life. When I only had to worry about myself, I could always find time for fitness. But when other people, my family, became a significant part of my life, I felt pulled to prioritize us rather than me. And my health often suffered as a result. I figured that this was just the way it went. After all, it seemed like everyone else I knew was on the same path. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, is this really how life is supposed to be? As time went on, I kept trying to balance the priorities of my life, striving to attain perfection. But I was constantly disappointed in myself. I was never able to truly balance at all. When I let one part of my life become the shining star, all other aspects of life would dim in comparison. If I focused on suffered. When I turned my energies towards my career, in particular when I was building my company, my family felt it, and so did my health. I just never seemed to have enough to make everything work. Do you know the feeling? Like many people, I found happy distraction activities that didn't propel me forward in life. Pub nights, boys trips, nights out with my colleagues, and long days on the golf course. I kept telling myself that tomorrow would be the day to reset and get everything in order. Tomorrow is the day to start my new habits. Tomorrow is the start of my path of awesomeness. But you know what? Every day I'd wake up to today and tomorrow would never arrive. Maybe you can relate. Many of us put all of our obligations, whether it's work, family, or social life, ahead of our own well-being and personal growth. We're so busy taking care of what other people need from us that we forget to pay attention to our own needs. The problem with that is that while this might help us get a lot mostly for others, we're probably not feeling satisfied with our lives. Even worse, if we're not careful, we can burn out, both mentally and physically. And when that happens, we not only let ourselves down, we also let down those who depend on us. My goal in creating the Whole Life Fitness Manifesto is to sweep away the negative energies, accentuate the positive ones, and empower you to radiate your own awesomeness, along with the greatness of those around you. In a nutshell, the Whole Life Fitness Manifesto is about putting yourself first, which will ultimately benefit those you care about. We all have people in our lives that matter to us. It's time we begin to matter to ourselves so that we can enjoy an incredible life with each other. So welcome to a new kind of fitness book. We're not just talking about physical fitness here. We're acknowledging that whole life awesomeness encompasses fitness of mind, body, and spirit. 
And because this is something that we all deserve, this book is for everyone. Even the most stamina challenged person can tackle the whole life fitness power 30 program, which will also test you if you are already pushing your own fitness limits. Getting a grip on total health and wellness is particularly important now because of disturbing rises in obesity and diabetes. Current health statistics, which you find throughout this book, are not pretty. In fact, they are a sobering wake-up call. But there is reason for hope. On the other end of the spectrum, there is a booming personal growth movement in which people are realizing their limitless potential as human beings. Put simply, linking your greater potential to your physical fitness is a powerful combination that can change and possibly save your life. As you'll see, workouts don't have to be a chore. Working out is really about enjoying a burst of movement that can function as a reset, a break, and a check-in with your body throughout the day. It's about feeling how daily movement can activate all kinds of positive things in your life. What makes me so certain about all this? Let me share a deeply personal story. When I was a kid, there were two students in my school who were extremely overweight. I was one of them. A 200-pound 15-year-old, I had the body mass index of over 40. I was, by definition, morbidly obese. But after a big personal breakthrough shortly after my 15th birthday, I dug deep to make a change. And quite simply, I never looked back. My mental attitude played a pivotal role in making that change. I wanted to be healthy, happy, and more satisfied with my life. And I did whatever it took to make that happen. Today, I am honored to be part of a family with my wife, Christy, and my daughter, Chardonnay and Brelin. I constantly strive to live a life of which I'm proud. In my professional life, I've evolved from a successful fitness equipment entrepreneur to a personal trainer, lifestyle coach, speaker, author, and all around life enhancer. I'm honored to have the ability to help people every day. Now, that's pretty awesome. Beyond my family, physical health, and career, one of the most important aspects of my well-being is my mental health or emotional fitness. I continually strive to cultivate a deep sense of purpose in my heart. And this is what makes me spring out of bed in the morning. And at the end of each day, I ask myself, was I the best person I could possibly be today? If I can answer yes, more often than not, then I know I'm on the right track. I know we are all capable of achieving whole life fitness. That is, while I believe it can, we can work out on our own, we never have to be alone with our fitness and lifestyle goals. Now that you found this book, you have found your community, your tribe. No matter what your current lifestyle, age, gender, or personality, you are not alone. We are here to encourage and support each other to be the happiest, healthiest versions of ourselves. So heads up. So hands up if you're ready for a whole life of awesomeness. Uh, so there you go. That's the intro. Thank you. So sitting here looking at the description on Amazon, I love that there's these bullet points. And there's, I won't read them all because there's several. <laughs> um, but the program in the book consists of the 15-minute equipment-free workouts that you can do anywhere, which I love because I don't have equipment. I don't have room for equipment. Awesome. There's the worksheets and diary pages to help you keep track of your progress, photo illustrated breakdowns of more than 30 exercises. Cause heaven knows people like me need that. Um, <laughs> just all these, these really great things. I've already got one in my Amazon cart. Um, so if people are looking to grab your book, I know that you have a social media presence on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, <laughs> Pinterest, YouTube, you've got a website, and your book is on Amazon. It, are they able to reach out to you to ask you other questions about it if they of decide course. that they want to purchase? Yeah. And also my website. <laughs> I've got about 1,800 articles on there. I've been blogging since 2007. Wow. And uh, it's all geared on helping people live their best life, you know. And uh, yeah, I always say, like, just reach out. Send me a DM. Send me an email. Uh, just 
please give me a little bit of grace because I am a team of one when it comes to managing my communications. I, I don't allow anybody else to do that because I want to have the conversation. I want to connect. And I, I also guard that very closely. Uh, so if you do send me a message, just give me a few days. I will always get back to you. But I, I love hearing from people and just hearing about what's got you excited in life, you know, and uh, that's always a nice place to start. Absolutely. You've done over 200 podcasts, about 30 radio shows, dozens of TV programs. You've done a TED Talk. You've got this huge list of getting your message out there to people. Mm. It's important that they recognize that that is truly who you are and that you want to help if they need it. Thank you, Amanda. And uh, well, it takes one to know one, right? (laughs) (laughs) I, I, you know, it's been a wonderful conversation, though, and I just I, I want to acknowledge and just say it one more time. But thank you for for gosh, I, I know it, there's a lot of things nights that go on in creating this kind of content and this kind of platform. But thank you for doing that. Uh, it's amazing. And it's it's changing the world. I know it is and it will continue to do so. But uh, really, thank you for allowing us all the opportunity to be those flies on the wall for some of these conversations, because I. <laughs> Gosh, so much can be learned and and, and shared in such a short time uh, oh, if we just absolutely. make the space to to dive in, right? So I just want to say thank you to you. I, I really appreciate today. Of course. And there's always one last question that I, yeah, that I have to sure. ask before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you listened to a couple of my podcasts. You may have heard this mm-hmm. one. What is one thing that you love about yourself that's mm-hmm. not related to your physical appearance? Yeah. You know, it's my ability to see in others the potential that they can't see in themselves. I, that is, I swear, one of my secret sauces. You know, I, I just, doesn't matter who you are. I, give me a minute with you and I can just see what's wanting to bust out, <laughs> you know, and, and I've really made that my life goal to, to, to help people release that, you know, let it out because that's the stuff that, that this world needs. And uh, I know I was very fortunate that I had someone in my life that did the exact same thing. And um, yeah just to have the opportunity to do that for others. It's just, it makes me smile. You know, it really does. That is amazing. And it really is a superpower. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Di Manuel for spending your time with me. DiManuel.com. D-A-I for the people wondering. Um, I, I just think you're amazing. I think your family is amazing and I haven't even met them. Just, yet yet yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're kind of a superstar it's really a privilege to have you on my show oh thank, thank you. you well thank you amanda again I, I can't wait for us to have a next conversation on my podcast you heard it here first so, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that will be coming but um I, I know that our paths will cross again soon and uh, i'm looking forward to that day already me too it'll be magical <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much ty thank you Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. 
You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking.